bullshit is everywhere. Don't have time. Uh, welcome back, <laughs> Bullshit Fielder. Panama Papers, 5.3, yeah. hour yeah. three. Ray, how are you holding up there? Uh, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I, can, I can go for 10, 15 more minutes. I'm good. <laughs> uh, well, in our last episode, uh, we talked about how one of the founders of Mossack Fonseca's father was a Nazi. And mm-hmm. the other was the second most powerful person in Panama at Ooh. the time, and uh, politically anyway, and got his big break as a lawyer for Adnan Khashoggi, one of the world's biggest arm dealers in the 70s. Um, so that's the two guys, that uh, the head of this firm that is running this massive uh, operation, helping rich people avoid tax and yeah. investigations and stuff like that, bleeding money out of the global economy. Oh, yeah. Now... After working on these files for a few months, as I mentioned earlier, the um, team of journalists sort of run by the the German newspaper, um, but in partnership with the ICIJ, the International Investigative Investigative Journalist Group run by Aussie Jared Ryle, Mm -hmm. was enormous. Um, They had like 100 or so colleagues in more than 50 countries. But as I said said earlier, their major problem was IT. Millions of documents, terabytes of data to search through, um, and and the list of people is enormous. Now... One of the other issues they had is obviously safety. Yeah. The, the, the data was pulling up pretty much every ruling dynasty in the Middle East, African <laughs> dictators, Eastern European oligarchs, Latin American rulers, international mafia networks, other criminals. Uh, and as journalists, you've got to be a little bit worried about um, your yeah. safety when you start exposing these people. Now, Germany, though, is apparently quite safe for investigative journalists. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other countries, obviously, not so much, especially Russia. Yes. And uh, one journalist did die uh, who was associated with the Panama Papers links. We'll talk about her a little bit later on. Now, I just want to um, maybe do another example for people about how these shell companies get used. Okay. Uh, do you have any anything to say before I get into my little example here? No, um, no, please. Okay. So this is an example that uh, one of the books I read talked about. A client gets in touch because he wants to cash a couple of checks worth about $100,000, but without leaving a trail to him or his company. Mm-hmm. Now, any bank trainee would at this point be asking, well, why would you want to do that? Yeah. Why, why are you trying to hide this money? But Mossack Fonseca <clears throat> would get creative and say, oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. We can help you do that. Easy peasy, Japanesey. <laughs> now, one of the suggestions made is to put the money into an anonymous trust. Right. Then the anonymous trust buys shares in a company, which then makes a donation of equal value back to the client. <laughs> oh, God. Uh-huh. So technically, when you put money in a trust, there are tax benefits for that because you don't have the money. It's in a trust. Right. 
Um, and the trust uh, is 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 not connected to you, yeah. and it's anonymous, obviously, so you can't see what's going on, and you're not even in control of the trust. Right. But uh, the trust then buys shares in the company, which makes a donation to you. So you get the money without there being any uh, evidence of where the money came from. Mm-hmm. Now, um, alternatively, one of the Mosfonid lawyers' advisors, and this is a real example in the paperwork. They could set up an offshore company that includes a clause in its statute stating that this company named ABC also trades under the names XYZ and BLA. Then you could open up a bank account under one of those names. Mm -hmm. So bank account under a name, who does it belong to? We don't know. To find out, you'd have to get the paperwork from the Mosfon company, which you're not going to be able to get because right. it's hidden, that company XYZ is actually company ABC, which is actually owned by company BLA, which is actually uh, owned by this trust, and the trust is actually blah, 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 blah. Right. Now, a Mosfon advisor came up with a, a, another scenario for two other clients. So he had client A, who wanted to move a substantial amount of money out of the US. Mm-hmm. Client B wanted to move a significant amount of money from the Singapore to the US okay. discreetly. So, so, Mon- so Mosfond came up with a plan where the two clients would transfer the money to each other. Oh, Client B would send $800,000 from his account in Singapore to a Swiss account belonging to Client A. <laughs> Client A then sends money from his account in the US to client B's account. Oh, my God. This leaves the two people with the $800,000 exactly where they want it without it being obvious what's going on. So it's a, they're fake transactions. Right. Uh, you're actually just moving your money from point A to point B, but it looks like it's a transaction. Yeah. You want it? We should do so, that. I got $2. Two yeah. dollar fifty. I don't know. Go ahead. So these are these are fake invoices. You're actually so again. It's all about the the difference between uh, revenue and profit. So if if you want to move, if you have a million dollars in profit mm-hmm. and you want to hide it so you don't pay taxes on it, because you only pay taxes on profit, you don't pay taxes on revenue. You've got a million dollars of profit. You want to you don't want to pay taxes on. It, you want to hide it. So company B sends you a fake invoice for a million dollars right and you then pay them the million dollars and then they take that million dollars and put it in your bank account secretly <laughs> um, so you get to keep the whole million dollars you don't need to pay taxes on you go well no I, I, I didn't make it's not profit I had to buy a million dollars worth of widgets for it right where are the widgets oh, don't, don't know got lost at sea <laughs> Fell off the back of a ship in the right. Pacific, Mariana Trench, oh, somewhere God. down there, I guess. God. Good. We got to claim our insurance for that. So we got another million dollars uh, because the widgets fell off the uh, ship. No, no. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's how the world works when you're rich. You mm-hmm. get to hide shit. Um, former U.S. Senate investigator Jack Bloom mm-hmm. described how this works in an article I read in Vice magazine. This trick is not only used by Mosfond, but also by numerous other companies and involves working as seamless, vertically integrated, top-down <laughs> organisations 
until the minute that a cop or investigator comes along. Then they disintegrate into a series of unconnected entities and everyone swears they don't know anything about anyone else in the system. (laughs) It's like a jigsaw puzzle that's assembled but suddenly falls apart when someone starts investigating. Wow. Now, apparently, this is also how Mosfon manages all of its own companies as well. Yeah. And there were records inside of the leaks that proved this. They had 200 companies where they hid their own dealings. Oh, my God. It's like, a, like Russian matryoshka dolls. Right. Where you put the tiny doll in a slightly bigger doll <laughs> and that doll in another doll and that doll in another Don't doll. Don't know where it ends. So... Yeah, I mean, to dig into each one of those takes time and effort and money for an investigator, and then they they just collapse them all. Oh, they're gone. Who are the owners? Don't know. They're gone. They're dead. What does it lead to? Nowhere. Exactly. Oh, I don't know. He's, he's, I don't know. He's dead. I don't know. (laughs) But I I just want to add. He's gone. I just want to add to take everything that Cam just said and to make it even more complex, like like you were saying a second ago, Mosfam, their own money, their own properties, their own everything is also set up in shell companies. So Mosfam isn't just one company, it's dozens of companies. And again, unless you know the inside scoop, you're not going to know that they're connected to each other and controlled by Mosfam, and you can't know it and or prove it unless you have their inside records, which of course you will never get. But these two German reporters have that, have such information. So one of the companies that they had set up um, is, um, I think it's Mosfam Holdings. And again, you would think naturally that that would belong to Mosfam, but no, they can sit there and say, that's a separate company altogether with its own clients. It does everything else. It does everything on its own. Now, for example, one of the Mosfam Holdings it is, is a subsidiary in Nevada. Now, I think I can't remember if we mentioned his name or not, but there's a gentleman named Paul Singer who has a uh, fund who was using that money to go after the two last presidents of Argentina because they've taken like $65 million out of the country. And they got Mosfam to create 123 offshore companies to hide that $65 million. So he's trying to get access to the records, proving that they're all connected. But because he doesn't know the inside workings of Mosfam, it's never going to happen. But here's the thing. So the German reporters have the emails and they can see that the Nevada office has one employee only, Patricia A. And just to make sure that there's that no one can find any connection between that one office and Mosfam back in Panama, they tell Patricia A to get new phones, make sure that the phones don't record any of your calls, and to get new computers because the old computers show that she has access to the Mosfam main system. And they even talk about, and this is probably a code name, there's a guy, they got a guy who can come in, fly in, wipe everything out, or take the computer out of there, but they've got this down to a science. But the point is, the the Mosfam Nevada branch is actually owned by them. You just actually have to have the detailed records. And if you can see the application that was used to open the account for that branch, it's owned 45% by um, Jurgen Mossack, 
45% by Ramon um, Fonseca, and 10% owned by their Swiss junior partner, Christoph Zollinger. So again, if you have access to all the records, you can see all this, or you can eventually put it all together, but public prosecutors or private um, journalists, anything going going after these people, unless you have the inside scoop, you will not be able to connect these together. And technically, they're not connected. It's just that you have to go through like 27 different layers to see to even begin to see any kind of connection so you really know who to talk to and who to really go after. So let's talk about the fallout of the Panama okay. Papers. All right. So far, according to the ICIJ, who have been tracking this, 23 countries have clawed back $1.2 billion in taxes. Now, it sounds like a lot, but uh, I suspect hundreds (laughs) of billions of dollars of taxes have been avoided um, as a result of... The you know Mosfon's shell companies alone, one point two billion sounds like a drop in the ocean to me. Yeah. Um, on top of that, Iceland's prime minister Sigmundur David Gunnlaugsson was forced mm-hmm. to quit. Uh, the papers revealed that he owned an offshore company in the British Virgin Islands with his <laughs> wife. Aww. He came to power in two thousand and thirteen, uh, promising to put the national interest over financial interests after the economy of Iceland collapsed during the GFC in 2008. Right. Um, But failed to disclose that uh, he owned millions of dollars worth of bonds in the collapsed banks through an offshore company that he and his wife owned. How did he he hide his part of owning that? through a shell company set up by Mosfon. Right, but the other part of that is as he comes to power, right before he comes to power, he sells his 50% of the share, uh, his 50% of the share of the shell company to his wife for $1. So it stays in the family, yeah. but now it's technically not in his name. And so he's not lying when he says, I don't own anything like that. Yeah, but, you know, he did own it at the time when everything collapsed and he didn't even reveal that. Yeah. Uh, So he went down. Pakistan's Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, his daughter and son-in-law were arrested because the Panama Papers revealed that the family was using offshore companies to buy expensive London properties. Uh, assumed with with funds uh, funneled out of Pakistan. El Salvador's yeah. former president is under investigation for funneling money out of the country. Um, in 82 countries uh, in all have launched investigations, including the US, Australia, Canada, the UK. Right. In 2016, Mosfon's offices in Panama City were raided by police on suspicion of money laundering, bribery, and corruption. And the two founders, Mossack and Fonseca, were arrested in February 2017 and spent a couple Mm -hmm. of months in jail, but were released a couple of months later. Now, this actually wasn't directly related to the uh, Panama Papers. It was something to do with Operation Car Wash, okay. uh, which is an ongoing Brazilian 
bribery and fraud scandal that Mosfon was involved in. Uh, it's yeah. mostly related to a Brazilian engineering company called Odebrecht, uh, which has been accused of massive amounts of bribery and fraud Right. That stretches from Brazil through to the US and Panama and all over the place. Um, and in fact, just in the last week, Glenn Greenwald's media company, The Intercept, has released lots of more uh, information based on leaks about Operation Car Wash. So there is there was fraud and scandal with the so it took down. The government, um, the the leftist government of Brazil under uh, De Silva, mm-hmm. at the time, and and the Brazilian government was replaced with an ultra right wing government, but it, but the Intercept then released leaks to show that the investigators of car wash in Brazil were corrupt, oh, and so God. the the investigators oh, of corruption were corrupt. And then they've gone down, and it's all uh, you know. Uh, well, uh, the cor- it's corruption on top of it's corruption turtles on top of corruption turtles all the way down, right. man. But you're talking about massive amounts of money, and you're, like you said, you throw that at people, and their eyes just glaze over, and they just give in, and they and they don't think about the compromising or the risk. They just think about they can either have a good life or take care of their family. I mean, they're only human, and. And they are being, you know, tempted with a lot of money. Because like you said, a psychopath will pay almost anything not to be proven to be wrong or corrupt or, or, or to have anybody have anything over them. Yeah. So the, the founders of Mosfon were arrested and released. Uh, Fonseca resigned or was fired as the senior advisor to the president of uh, yeah. Panama. But... To the best of my knowledge, uh, neither of them are in jail uh, right. today. There's been no long-term consequences for them. Um, they're probably living happily on their yeah. gajillions of money, <laughs> uh, dollars hidden in shell yeah. companies. Hmm. Brilliant. Um, now, while reporting on the Mossack Fonseca leaks and their relation to the Maltese government... Mm-hmm. A Maltese journalist, Daphne Galizia, was killed by a car bomb. Yeah. Uh, she had been reporting on government corruption and connections to organised crime personalities. Yeah. She'd been doing that for a long time. Getting death threats, uh, but she never stopped. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And her adult son um, heard the explosion. She just left her house. Right. He ran down and found her body parts uh, on the ground 80 metres away from where the car Jeez. exploded. Right. Um, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange announced he would pay a $20,000 euro reward for mm. information leading to the conviction of her killers. Then there was nice. a crowdfunding campaign that raised a million euro to be given as a reward. Then the state government said that they would put up a million euro. Three men were eventually arrested for her assassination, but none of them have been to trial yet. Yeah. Nobody has been arrested for ordering the murder, even though a Maltese minister last year accused a police sergeant of tipping off suspects in the murder that they were about to be arrested, so they got to throw their mobile phones into the sea before the police arrived. Um, the Malta's Prime Minister is continuing to block a public inquiry into the circumstances of her mm-hmm. assassination. 
Um, no one uh, that she'd yeah. investigated on has been um, brought to justice. Yeah, it's not going to happen. They're just they're just stringing it out like you do, and eventually people will move on like they always do. Yeah. Then in March of 2018, Mosfon finally closed up shop. Yeah. Uh, they put out a statement that said the reputational deterioration, God. the media campaign, the financial siege and the irregular actions of some Panamanian authorities have called, uh, caused irreparable damage, mm. whose obligatory consequence is the total cessation of operations to the public. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go have an orgy on my yacht. Yeah. The, the firm thing. said it would continue to call for justice and would cooper- cooperate with authorities to demonstrate that no crime has been committed. Oh, God. Lawyers. But that's what you do. You deny until the end, right? Yeah. Deny, deny, deny. Um, In May 2019, so only a month ago, they had new elections in Panama. Uh, Varela, the Mm -hmm. president who uh, Fonseca uh, had been the 2IC of his party, he lost the election, was replaced with a new president, Laurentino Cortizo, a 66-year-old businessman who campaigned on an anti-corruption ticket. We're going to clean up the corruption. <laughs> Guaranteed that within a two years, uh, he's exposed as being corrupt. But yeah. we'll, we'll see. Yeah. And- Meanwhile, another ex-president of Panama, Ricardo Martinelli, is in jail awaiting a yeah. corruption trial. You read about him? Yeah, he was uh, he was in office from 2009 to 2014 when Interpol issued a request for international arrest. He's been accused of spying, you know, listening on telephone conversations, that, that kind of thing. But hey, who doesn't do that? But he embezzled on a forty five million dollar contract to purchase food for schools. You can't get much lower than that. He was arrested in Miami in June of 2017. So, yeah, all the uh, you know, I, it's like. When it's something like the Panama Papers start, you know, people either start confessing because they don't want to get caught. They'd rather just pay a fine and move along. But it does get people worked up and authorities do get information that they can use and they can track these people down. And, and people can be caught. It just it just takes someone to step forward and, and to leak information. And you can see a lot of uh, the fallout from something like the Panama Papers. These people are st- are starting to go down. But it's like you said, the 1.8 billion dollars that companies uh, countries have been able to get back it's a drop in the bucket compared to all the people who have committed crimes by hiding their money yeah but this so this is the classic right so martinelli ex-president of panama mm-hmm. accused of embezzling hundreds of millions of dollars out of the country yeah. um he's living happily in miami how the fuck yeah did the authorities, the American authorities, allow this guy to be living in Miami? Jeez. Uh, you know, yeah. evading arrest in Panama uh, because the U.S. You know, if you're a <coughs> if you're a lefty dictator, they put a hit out on you. If you're a righty dictator, right. that's okay. Come yeah. and yeah, have a mansion in Miami. Have two. It's fine. Anyway, he was finally extradited. Interesting guy. He was educated in the U.S., and this is a classic story with your Latin American uh, corrupt Mm -hmm. dictators and businessmen, right? 
Um, completed his secondary education at Staunton Military Academy in Staunton, Virginia. Oh, nice. How Stanton. far is how oh, far is that from you? That's 40, 45 minutes away. You pronounce that Stanton, hey? Yeah. You just ignore the U? Yes, it's, yes, Stanton, Virginia. Yep. Why do you just ignore the U? Like, uh, it's there for a reason. I'm sure there's a reason. I don't know. But Stanton, Virginia not only has uh, a great Shakespeare theater, but they have one of the best cigar shops in Central Virginia. So you should definitely check it out if you ever go there. But but it's pronounced Stanton, Virginia. Really? Yeah. Fuck me. Don't worry about you it. You Americans, you just don't We just make, we just make shit, uh, English means nothing to us. We do whatever we want with words. We make words <laughs> our bitches. Okay? We just do whatever we want. Right. Well, um, let's see. Yeah, so he was educated there. Then he worked for Citibank, ended up becoming a billionaire. On He was a banker in um, Panama, ended up buying a bunch of businesses <sighs> and became a billionaire, right. billionaire entrepreneur before he got into politics. The Economist in 2019, when he won the election, said that voters want him to run the country as well as he manages his businesses. <laughs> like sound, fami- sound familiar? <laughs> yes. I am so good at business. You will not believe it. I am so unbelievably good. I have shell companies, but don't worry about that. Yeah. Um, he is accused of having received at least $22 million in bribes from the Brazilian engineering company Odebrecht ah. that I mentioned as part of Operation Car Wash. Yeah. Uh, the money had been hidden in bank accounts in Switzerland. Um, yeah. Jeez. So now let's talk about the US. So one of the most notable features of the Panama Papers, as I mentioned in our first episode, was... Mm-hmm. The lack of American business and political leaders and companies showing up in it. Right. Now, why do you think that would be, Ray? Why they weren't showing up in the Panama? Um, How do I say this without sounding like a racist? It sounds like a lot of Americans were using different companies, different law firms, as as opposed to Moss Fund. Would that be... Close to it? Mm, well, well, I thought you were going to say because Americans don't do this sort no, of thing. No, we do. We normally Americans. Are we prefer to work with white clean. people. But no, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We don't work. Uh, I don't know. I, I just assume that for whatever reason, a lot of Americans either weren't steered that way, or there are so many other companies to choose from, they just went other places. But that's a guess on my part. Mm. Well, yeah. Look, there are certain. Um, possibilities mm-hmm. here. Uh, Craig Murray, who's a former British ambassador to Uzbekistan and is a journalist these days, he 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 pointed out that the investigation and the media coverage on it mostly focused on rogue states like right. Zimbabwe, North Korea, Syria, Russia. He wrote, the, the filtering of this Mossack Fonseca information by the corporate media follows a direct Western governmental agenda. There is no mention at all of use of Mossack Fonseca by massive Western corporations or Western billionaires, mm-hmm. the main customers. Right. Now, maybe, I mean, I haven't been through the documents myself. Maybe they weren't showing up in there. Maybe that's because they're better hidden Right. in the paper trail. I mean, Mossack Fonseca doesn't have access to all of the information of all of the clients that are using their services. Mm-hmm. Like, so if you've already 
got a, a level of uh, like a, a paper trail of lawyers that you're working with before you get to the one that talks to Mossack Fonseca about setting up a shell company, that's not going to turn up in the Mossack Fonseca ah, leaks. Right. Good point. Mossack Fonseca did know of some of the people who were the ultimate owners of their corporations, but in a lot of cases they didn't. If a yeah. US law firm uh, sets up a shell company with Mossack Fonseca, you only know the name of the law firm. Right. You know, the law firm's hi- hiding who the, the true owner is. So then those names aren't going to show up. You're not going to be able to search for them. Um, but yeah. the US is widely recognized as a leading source of offshore money during the Union Bank of Switzerland a.k.a. UBS tax evasion scandal, mm-hmm. evidence came out that at that bank alone, U.S. clients had almost 20,000 Swiss-based accounts oh my God. in one Swiss bank. Right. Why Gee. would you have money in a Swiss account? It's to hide it, right? So right. Uh, um, that's just at one Bank. So we know that Americans are doing this en masse. Right. Um, they just didn't get revealed, uh, many of them, through the Panama Papers. papers. Now, yes? Let, let me just ask something real quick, because I remember reading the book from the two German journalists. Because the files got so big and they wanted to focus on the German stories, when the ICIJ started parceling things out, weren't they sending them to the you know, rel- roughly speaking, relative countries of of the, where the accounts were at, and, and I'm and I'm and I'm tra- kind of reaching here, but wouldn't I, I can't remember which American journalists and or newspapers were tapped by the ICIJ to go after any American uh, any Americans using MOSFOM. I, I just wonder if there's any kind of connection between that coming back here and these corporate-owned newspapers not hitting it as hard as other uh, countries would, but that's just me hypothesizing. Yeah, no, I think there were American media companies involved in the ICIJ investigation, but uh, here's mm-hmm. the thing. Um of the data that ICIJ uh, had from Mosfon leaks, there was about 14,000 intermediaries mentioned. Right. So remember, they, the, Mosfon usually wouldn't deal directly with the end owner of the money. They would de- deal with banks or law firms right. or company and corporation firms or other middlemen. There was 14,000 of those. Mm-hmm. Um, 617 of those were based in the United States. Mm. So about 15%. Right. 15% of the middlemen were in the United States. So who were they working for? Well, we don't know. Yeah. Uh, And without knowing who they were working for or what they were doing with those companies, it's uh, difficult to... Uh, uh, put it together. To m- make a story right. out of it, right? right? If it's well hidden. Now, there are other several uh, other reasons why the United States may not have been as big a source of clients for Mosfon as you would expect, mm-hmm. relatively speaking. Um, partly because you might want to avoid having a large presence in the United States, Mosfon, ah, that is, right. because they didn't want to attract the attention of US authorities. 
and partly because there might be too much competition. So an article I came across that was published in The Economist in 2012 pointed out that the business of setting up shell companies in tax havens is very, very competitive. (laughs) There were a lot of very well-established firms, uh, including Offshore Incorporations Limited in Hong Kong, Mm -hmm. um, Okra Worldwide, based in the Isle of Man, and Morgan & Morgan in Panama, who I mentioned in our first episode, one of Mosfon's biggest competitors. In other words, wealthy Americans have lots of options for structuring their offshore holdings. But the other thing you have to understand is there is a diplomatic relationship between the United States and Panama. Mm -hmm. The entire point of setting up a shell company is to hide things, but in 2010, the US and Panama signed a trade promotion agreement uh, that included, among other things, an obligation on behalf of Panama to provide to the US authorities on request information regarding the ownership of companies, partnerships, trusts, foundations, and other persons, including ownership information on all such persons in an ownership chain. Mm. So if you want to hide stuff from US authorities, you're not going to set up a company in Panama. Gotcha. Okay. It's all relative. But that said... There were 670 <laughs> middlemen based in the United States right. that did do business with Mosfet. Right. Now, some of these have been investigated, but according to a recent statement I read by the Acting Deputy Assistant Director, FBI Criminal Investigative Division, Stephen M. D. Antuyono. Right. It's uh, not as easy as it may seem. Did you okay. read his statement? I read some of it. I, the, the part that I found interesting was that um, uh, he, he was just talking about what, a theme that we were talking about earlier about, you know, the governments are missing out on a lot of extra revenue that they could be using to help the people if it wasn't for the greedy son of a bitch just hiding in the first place. So he says to the Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs of the U.S. Senate, he says... The UN, the UN Office of Drugs and Crimes estimates that annual illicit proceeds total more than $2 trillion globally, and proceeds of crime generated in the United States were estimated to total approximately $300 billion in 2010. That's just one year, or 2% of the overall U.S. economy at the time. So, yeah, he's he's saying on one hand, I, I just want you to know how much we are missing out on, and on the other hand, that I think you're going to allude to, how difficult it is to try to get information to get our hands on any of this um, illegally generated or hidden money. Yeah. So this FBI agent, uh, Dan Tuono, um, said, uh, like, the, the Mosfon's U.S.-based subsidiaries established thousands of U.S.-based shell companies in several states, mm-hmm. but investigators in the U.S. are effectively stymied trying to figure out who owned them. He said all that the investigator could learn was that the agent was MF Nevada or the like. Right. This, of course, made investigating the shell entities extremely time-consuming, inefficient, and difficult. Mm. So these are company these these companies in the US uh, set up at a state level rather than a national level, oh. and 
you know, you have states like Delaware and New Jersey that don't require disclosure of the ultimate owner right. or, or, or beneficiary um, at registration. And uh, there are federal laws that don't require the identification of beneficial owners when opening an account with a financial institution. Mm-hmm. So D'Antuono told the Senate committee that the near complete lack of transparency in the US allows international crime gangs and corrupt individuals to move assets derived from criminal activities such as drug dealing, political corruption, tax evasion, human trafficking and and child prostitution uh, easily and effectively inside of the United States. Whoa. So, you know, one one point here is that if you want to hide money in the US, you don't even need to go to Panama. You just <laughs> set it up in Delaware right. and boom, Nevada. off you go. Yeah, they're not going to find it. Nevada. Nevada. Yeah, where I got married for exactly yeah. that reason. <laughs> got, got married in Nevada so no one can ever prove it. Now... There have been tighter controls on money laundering in in Europe, apparently, over the last few years, and the U.S. has become an even bigger magnet for dirty money. And in 2017, the year after the Panama Papers were leaked, another document trove called the Paradise Papers were leaked to the same journalists at the same (laughs) German newspaper, but from a new source. And in this case, we know who the source was. Now, the leak came from uh, an offshore law firm called Appleby, based Mm -hmm. in Bermuda. As of 2008, they were the largest offshore law firm in the world, with 73 partners and 200 lawyers. This leak contained the names of more than 120,000 people and companies, including Facebook, Twitter, Apple, Walt Disney, Uber, Nike, Walmart, Allianz, Siemens, again, Global Vantage, McDonald's, Microsoft, Yahoo, Prince Charles, Queen Elizabeth II, Bono and Madonna, and the list goes on. (laughs) So they're, like you were saying, putting money in places so it can't be found, so it can't be taxed, and these are... You know, these are, I guess, what you would call a blue chip companies that people use or rely on. Americans do every day of their life or whatever. And they're doing it here just like they're doing it everywhere else. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, now the, the records. I'm sorry. Let me just add to that real quick. According, also adding on to that list. Oh, and I think you were about to say this, dude. I'm sorry. Yeah. According to the same records, the United States Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross holds stakes in businesses which deal with Russian oligarchs. Is that Leonid Mikhilson? And I don't, you probably know this. How do you say these names? Gennady Timchenko, who are subject to you. It doesn't matter how you pronounce it. Just, just okay. say it with the right accent. Okay, right. then it's okay. Who are, who are subjects, who are subject to U.S. sanctions? So even our own United States Secretary of Commerce, you know, is, is dealing with Russian oligarchs who are already on the U.S. sanctions list. So it, it, 
I think you were saying this um, a long time ago in the Cold War, I'm trying to remember, but in some ways, borders on maps don't matter. Culture doesn't matter. It all comes down to money, and everybody's working with everybody to try to get their own, hide it from the government or whatever, but it, it just seems to be that kind of mentality that they're, you know, partners are partners as long as everybody's getting paid and they watch each other's backs. They don't care where you're from, what you've done. It's all about getting. It's all about getting your your cut of the money. Yeah. Well, to tell the, that story in a little bit more detail, mm-hmm. Wilbur Ross, still Trump's commerce secretary, right. he's a already a rich private equity tycoon. Um, through a shell company, he had a stake in uh, has, as far as I know, still a stake in a shipping company oh, that had received more than sixty eight million dollars in revenue since two thousand and fourteen from a Russian energy company called Sieber. Now, Sieber has American sanctions against it because it is owned by these Russian oligarchs that have close ties to Vladimir Putin, including uh, it's owned uh, in part by Vladimir Putin's son-in-law, Kirill uh, Shamalov. Right. And so... Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, (laughs) has an ownership through a secret shell company in a company that's trading with a Russian company that has American sanctions against it, and he failed to disclose those ties during his confirmation hearings. In fact, during his confirmation hearings, he promised in a letter to the Office of Congressional Ethics to cut ties with more than 80 financial entities in which he had interests in. That letter played a big role in securing his confirmation, but he didn't cut this one to uh, dealing with Russian-sanctioned companies. So the next question is... By the way... Yeah, yeah. By the way... He's a Democrat, uh, (laughs) Wilbur Ross, or was up until recently, served under Bill Clinton um, on the board of the U.S.-Russia Investment Fund. Just in case you think, oh, these dirty Republicans. Uh, Lifelong lifelong Democrat. Yeah. Yeah. I think until recently. I think until the Trump campaign, he he became an early supporter of the Trump campaign. (laughs) But before that, always a Democrat. (laughs) So, again, the question is, why isn't anybody knocking on his door? How is he not being shamed and or removed from his position? Because obviously Trump is probably like, eh, I'm okay with it. I'll allow it. Because whatever the president wants in this day and age, a president seems to get. So it's obviously it's it's obviously okay with Trump because one word from him and this guy would be gone. Yeah. Just, well, it's but. probably because Trump's doing the same thing, I imagine. <laughs> it's probably how he and Wilbur Ross met. Right. And they met at, uh, at a shell company party. Who, the, 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 yeah, <laughs> <laughs> shell company for people that own stakes in uh, businesses doing businesses against U.S. sanctions <laughs> club. Um, so the Queen, get back to the Queen. Yes, the records, the Paradise Papers show that the Queen's private estate invested in a Cayman Islands fund that in turn invested in a private equity company Ooh. called Bright House. Right which was a British rent-to-own firm that had been criticised by consumer watchdogs and members of parliament for selling household goods to cash-strapped British people on payment plans with high interest rates as high as 99.9%. Oh, my God. 
In Virginia, which had never been disclosed before. In Virginia, the highest amount of interest you're allowed to charge is thirty-five and a half. I see the thirty-five or thirty-seven. So the Queen has got us beat. Bully for her. Yeah, good on you, Queenie. <laughs> um, Wesley Clark. Uh-oh. Turned up in the documents. You may remember him. I talk about mm-hmm. him from time to time. He uh, is a retired four-star U.S. Army general, served as NATO Supreme Commander in Europe. He's the guy, I always quote, who says he was told by somebody in the Pentagon after 9-11, days after 9-11, that the U.S. was going to invade right. seven countries in quick succession. Um Turns up in the Paradise Papers as a director of an online oh. gambling company with offshore subsidiaries. Um, James Meyer Sassoon turned up in the papers. Now, he's a member of the Sassoon yeah. family, known as the Rothschilds of the East. <laughs> um, what's fascinating about him is that it was revealed in the Paradise Papers, that he had a $236 million trust fund in the Cayman Islands. Uh, And yet he, in 2007, was the president of the International Financial Action Task Force on Money Laundering. (laughs) Now, (laughs) if, if you're someone who has access to or you have money and you either want to make more money or keep the money that you got, wouldn't you be a fool not to take advantage of all these different... I mean, it sounds like just almost everybody who can, not everybody, but a lot of people can, is doing it because that's what you do. That's how you keep your money. That's how you avoid paying taxes. That's how you invest and, and make even more money. And maybe you don't know every little bit that's going on with your money. You've put it in someone else's hands and you're not at, you're not watching them too closely. I mean, isn't that... I, I guess one of the points that we're trying to make is, isn't this... Does this seem to be the norm of what the rich does? This isn't just some weird 2% of the rich shady underworld. This seems to be part and parcel, standard practice, standard operating procedure of what it means to have wealth and or influence in the world. Yeah, it it is. And you're right. Most rich people, uh, and Donald Trump has said this publicly, well, yeah, you you use every tool available to you to minimize Mm -hmm. the amount of tax that you pay. You would be a dummy if you don't do that, is the way that a lot of them say that. But here's here's a different perspective. Okay. When you are rich, you are rich because the society that you live in has enabled you to become rich. Mm-hmm. You don't just wake up one day and click your fingers and you're rich. You have I tried it. even if you're even, even <laughs> if you're a genius, yeah. um, uh, 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 and you invented the fucking Apple iPhone or something. Right. There are people who enabled you to become rich. Mm-hmm. They're ranging from the employees who work in your business that help you make and sell your products and administer all of that through to the people who keep society running around you while you're making and selling your product, the people that pave the roads and keep the roads clean and, and keep you know keep the garbage being collected and right. put gas in your tank and put food in the supermarket so you can eat and clothes in the shop so you can dress your family, they keep the heating and the cooling running and keep the air clean and the water flowing and all of the other services that you use. You are part of a society that mm-hmm. if it didn't f- exist and function the way it does, yeah. if you had to grow your own food, build your own house, 
protect your own house from thieves. Right. Uh, There's no iPhone. Uh, 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 Make your own clothes, generate your own electricity. Exactly. There's no iPhone. You'd be too busy if you lived in a feudal society and you had to (laughs) protect yourself and do it all yourself. You don't have the time to build an iPhone or invent an iPhone and the people in society don't have the ability to make it for you because they're too busy growing carrots in their backyard to feed their family. Come on, carrots. So... Every wealthy person is wealthy in large part because society enables them to be wealthy. Mm. It doesn't matter how much of a fucking genius you are. You can only do what you do because society provides the framework, the infrastructure for you to do that. And that society exists because over a century or several centuries, people who came before you have invested into the future of that society. They've paid taxes. They've grown that infrastructure. So there was a sufficient level of political stability and education and health care mm-hmm. and all of these sorts of things and services, goods and services that built society from the ground up over generations where it's at a point where you could go and build your business and make the money that you make. You have, I would argue and do argue in my book, you have not only a moral but a direct self-interest in keeping society functioning and running by taking some of those profits that you make and investing it back into the society that enabled you to become rich in the first place. Otherwise, it'll break down. It's self-interested because if you don't do that, it will all break down. If you just keep pissing all over society from your penthouse apartment, (laughs) whipping your dick out and just pissing golden piss on everybody, eventually you're going to flood the world in piss and shit. And that's what you're doing when you you deliberately try and avoid... Like, if you're broke like a podcaster and you can't (laughs) afford to pay tax and keep the lights on, that's one thing. Right. Um, if you're filthy rich and you deliberately try and minimize the amount of tax you can pay when you can afford to pay more, the only difference between you paying a good chunk of tax and little tax is, you know, one less fucking million dollar Lamborghini you get to buy this year, then fuck right. you. It's it's yeah. not only immoral. It's psychopathic and self-destructive because you are pissing on the society that enables you to live. And you know what? Go go back to uh, the beginnings of the French Revolution and ask the French nobility how that works out in the long run, or the Cuban nobility, or the Russian nobility before 1917. They had the same sort of mindset. Fuck the peasants. Right. We're rich. Fuck you. Your problem, not my problem. Stay down. And eventually, it, it his, history teaches us, you know, you and I have talked about this in Rome. Um, eventually, this leads to civil war, and that's what's going to happen if this keeps up. Now, um, enough on that. Don't get me fucking started. <laughs> I talk about that all day. Let's... Let's talk about some other people that turned up and some other things that happened. Um, uh, la, 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 la. 
Now, Panama's parliament passed a bill in February 2019 that elevates tax evasion in Panama to a criminal offence. Mm-hmm. But well, it's only for yeah. evasion of taxes worth $300,000 or more. <laughs> <laughs> and it imposes prison sentences of, of between two to five years. Yeah. Anyone found guilty of the offence will be liable for charges between two and ten times the total sum evaded. Don't, don't I just have to set up more show companies and say, hey, everybody, keep it under $300,000. It's a little more work. We're going to have to put out a couple more hundred bucks and, hire, and do some more show companies, but... I mean, it's a start. I shouldn't be that cynical. It's a start. But $300,000 yeah. to me is a lot of money. Yeah, but it's, it's you know, tax evasion if they can prove tax evasion. Uh, right. But uh, as Good we point. know, it's impossible to trace these things. They didn't shut down shell companies and go, okay, no more shell companies. Right. Um, but the two days after they passed this law, and this was by the outgoing administration, this is Varela's administration, trying right. to prove that they were doing something against corruption so he could win the next election. Didn't help. No. Um, two days later, anyway, the European Commission added Panama to its blacklist of countries deemed uncooperative on money laundering. Oh, um, and, of course, yeah. that leaves the Bahamas as the only jurisdiction in the region not to categorize tax evasion as a criminal offense. So, yay, yeah. I guess. Then in the UK, the MPs passed a law requiring British overseas territories, which includes the British Virgin Islands, to create public registers of shell company owners. Ooh. This, this is more of what we're looking for here. So, yeah, you can create a shell company, but the owners of that need to be listed. Oh. Publicly available for people to search on. Uh, but British's, uh, Britain's overseas territories refuse to implement it. They're like, <laughs> fuck you, come and make us. The British Virgin Islands hired a law firm Here we go. to try and get around having to do this. The premier of the Cayman Islands, which is another British tax haven, Notice how Panama has been basically controlled by the Americans and the British Virgin Islands and the Cayman Islands and Bermuda and the Bahamas, basically controlled by the British. Uh, I don't think there's any coincidence there. (laughs) Um, The Premier of the Cayman Islands attacked this vote as reminiscent of the worst injustices of a bygone era of colonial despotism. How dare you tell us to stop? Hiding people's tax money. We make a living out of that. Yeah, they literally do. Between that and the, and tourism, I think that's I think that's it. So I can I can see their point. And the tourism is mostly people going there to open <laughs> up <laughs> offshore bank accounts. Exactly. Then in June of 2018, there was another Mosfon leak to ICIJ. This is after the company had even closed up shop. Oh, my God. Um, But the fascinating thing about this leak is that, uh, well, one of the fascinating things is that one Mosfon employee was continuing to sign documents (gasps) and attend the board meetings of several thousand offshore companies. Oh, my God. Despite having died in 2005. I'm no expert, but that doesn't sound right. It's a zombie. Zombie zombie apocalypse, obviously. It's coming. 
Oh my god. Zombie directors. <laughs> new service being brought to you by Mosfo. <laughs> Did you read some of the abuse emails that Mosfon were getting after the leaks came out? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't have it written down, but there was a lot of uh, capital letters and exclamation points um, in those emails. Thanks to you, all the names of our customers have been known by the authorities of their countries. <laughs> Thanks to Mossack, customers now have to pay income taxes, <laughs> wrote one of their law firm clients. <laughs> Damn you, sir. Damn you to hell. Mosfon kept sending customers their standard rates and fees during the crisis. One client wrote them an email that said, What a brutality that you dare to send me an invoice for the annual fee. <laughs> so their clients weren't very happy no. that their secrets had been divulged. Which, which just shows you either how what, spoiled or they've come to expect to do this and get away with it, and they don't want any hiccups. I mean, that's just, that's psychotic to me. But I I apologize for interrupting. Psychopathic. Psychopath. There we go. There we go. How dare you get caught out hiding the secrets of the illegal activities of our clients? You make us all look like a Mickey Mouse operation. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Of the 14,000 middlemen companies that Mosfon worked for, for or with banks, law firms, etc., etc., the top 10 locations were Hong Kong, UK, Switzerland, USA, Panama, Guatemala, Luxembourg, Brazil, Ecuador, and Uruguay. Wow. More than 500 banks in all had requested that Mosfon create 15,000 shell companies for their clients between 1977 through to the end of 2015, including many big British and European names, some of which I've mentioned, HSBC. Mm -hmm. The ICIJ said that HSBC had profited from arms dealers, bagmen for third world dictators, traffickers and blood diamonds and other international outlaws. Are they still in business? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, UBS, uh, obviously, was a big one. Credit Suisse, Bank Internationale, a Luxembourg. And it's not the first time these banks have been caught with their hands in the money laundering jar. As I said in a previous episode, HSBC entered into a deferred prosecution agreement (laughs) with the US Department of Justice in 2012 and paid $1.9 billion and admitted to conduct that violated US sanctions laws and anti-money laundering statutes. This is one of the biggest companies in the world. Came in at number 21 on the Forbes Global 2000 last year. It's like the Catholic Church. Oh, good point. They can rape rape kids over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Yeah. Get caught out and just keep going. These companies commit around. massive, yeah. massive crimes, get caught out and just shrug their shoulders, go, oh, yeah. oh well, look next here, time. sure, slap us on the wrist, yeah. we'll pay a little fine, right. fuck you. And they then they issue a press release saying, oh, we've really cleaned up our act uh, this time. Yeah. Oh, this time we're really going to do it right. New and managers. they just go back to business as usual. Because it makes money. And that's what they're there for. UBS and Credit Suisse are in a similar spot. In 2015, UBS pled guilty on one count of wire fraud 
related to the manipulation of benchmark interest rates. Credit Suisse pleaded guilty in 2014 to helping US citizens dodge tax payments. Uh, in terms of the British, uh, one of out of every two of the companies that appear in Mosfond's files were incorporated in the British Virgin oh, Islands. Second only to Panama. Um, then there was the Bahamas right. next, uh, which only got its independence from Great Britain in 1973. By the way, British Virgin Islands are just off of Puerto Rico, if you don't know where they are. Right. Only became autonomous from Great Britain in 1967, but they are still considered British citizens. Yeah. Uh, the Bahamas only got its independence from GB in 1973. Uh, there were others registered in Jersey, Guernsey, and the Isle of Man. So as I said, British yeah, they know how territories... To do it. Yeah. A uh, big, big part of hiding all of this. And look, I just want to wrap up, Ray, unless you have something else to contribute with. Um, uh, uh, I want to read the manifesto of John Doe, the pseudonym of the original source of the Panama Papers. Please but do you want to throw in anything before I do that? Please read away. So, again, this this... The source of the Panama Papers has managed to remain anonymous and alive somehow. Did a good job. And in 2016, he gave the journalists at uh, SZ this statement, which they confirmed is actually from him. The revolution will be digitised. Income inequality is one of the defining issues of our time. It affects all of us the world over. The debate over its sudden acceleration has raged for years with politicians, academics and activists all alike helpless to stop its steady growth despite countless speeches, statistical analysis, a few meagre protests and the occasional documentary. Still, questions remained. Why and why now? The Panama Papers provide a compelling answer to these questions. Massive, pervasive corruption. And it's not a coincidence that the answer comes from a law firm. More than just a cog in the machine of wealth management, Mossack Fonseca used its influence to write and bend laws worldwide in favour of the interests of criminals over a period of decades. In the case of the island of Niu, the firm essentially ran a tax haven from start to finish, Ramon Fonseca and Jürgen Mossack would have us believe that their firm's shell companies, sometimes called special purpose vehicles, are just like cars. But used car salesmen don't write laws. And the only special purpose of the vehicles they produced was too often fraud on a grand scale. Shell companies are often associated with the crime of tax evasion, but the Panama Papers show beyond a shadow of a doubt that, although shell companies are not illegal by definition, they are used to carry out a wide array of serious crimes that go beyond evading taxes. I decided to expose Mossack Fonseca because I thought its founders, employees and clients should have to answer for their roles in these crimes, only some of which have come to light thus far. It will take years, possibly decades, for the full extent of the firm's sordid acts to become known. In the meantime, a new global debate has started, which is encouraging. Unlike the polite rhetoric of yesteryear that carefully omitted any suggestion of wrongdoing by the elite, this debate focused directly on what matters. In that regard, I have a few thoughts. 
For the record, I do not work for any government or intelligence agency directly or as a contractor, and I never have. My viewpoint is entirely my own, as was my decision to share the documents with the Deutsche Zeitung and the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, not for any specific political purpose, but simply because I understood enough about their contents to realise the scale of the injustices they described. The prevailing media narrative thus far is focused on the scandal of what is legal and allowed in this system. What is allowed is indeed scandalous and must be changed. But we must not lose sight of another important fact. The law firm, its founders and employees actually did knowingly violate myriad laws worldwide repeatedly. Publicly, they pled ignorance, but the documents showed detailed knowledge and deliberate wrongdoing. At the very least, we already know that Mossack personally perjured himself before a federal court in Nevada, and we also know that his information technology staff attempted to cover up the underlying lies. They should all be prosecuted accordingly with no special treatment. In the end, thousands of prosecutions could stem from the Panama Papers if only law enforcement could access and evaluate the actual documents. ICIJ and its partner publications have rightly stated that they will not provide them to law enforcement agencies. I, however, would be willing to cooperate with law enforcement to the extent that I am able. That being said, I have watched as one after another whistleblowers and activists in the United States and Europe have had their lives destroyed by the circumstances they find themselves in after shining a light on obvious wrongdoing. Edward Snowden is stranded in Moscow, exiled due to the Obama administration's decision to prosecute him under the Espionage Act. For his revelations about the NSA, he deserves a hero's welcome and a substantial prize, not banishment. Bradley Birkenfeld was awarded millions for his information concerning Swiss bank UBS and was still given a prison sentence by the Justice Department. Antoine Deltour is presently on trial for providing journalists with information about how Luxembourg granted secret sweetheart tax deals to multinational corporations, effectively stealing billions in tax revenues from his neighbour countries. And there are plenty more examples. Legitimate whistleblowers who expose unquestionable wrongdoing, whether insiders or outsiders, deserve immunity from government retribution, full stop. Until governments codify legal protections for whistleblowers into law, enforcement agencies will simply have to depend on their own resources or ongoing global media coverage for documents. In the meantime, I call on the European Commission, the British Parliament, the United States Congress and all nations to take swift action, not only to protect whistleblowers, but to put an end to the global abuse of corporate registers. In the European Union, every member state's corporate register should be freely accessible, with detailed data plainly available on ultimate beneficial owners. The United Kingdom can be proud of its domestic initiatives thus far, but it still has a vital role to play by ending financial secrecy on its various island territories, which are unquestionably the cornerstone of institutional corruption worldwide. And the United States can clearly no longer trust its 50 states to make sound decisions about their own corporate data. It is long past time for Congress to step in and force transparency by setting standards for disclosure and public access.
And while it's one thing to extol the virtues of government transparency at summits and in sound bites, it's quite another to actually implement it. It's an open secret that in the United States, elected representatives spend the majority of their time fundraising. Tax evasion cannot possibly be fixed, while elected officials are pleading for money from the very elites who have the strongest incentives to avoid taxes relative to any other segment of the population. These unsavoury political practices have come full circle, and they are irreconcilable. Reform of America's broken campaign finance system cannot wait. Of course, those are hardly the only issues that need fixing. Prime Minister John Key of New Zealand has been curiously quiet about his country's role in enabling the financial fraud mecca that is the Cook Islands. In Britain, the Tories have been shameless about concealing their own practices involving offshore companies, while Jennifer Shasky Calvary, the director of the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network at the United States Treasury, just announced her resignation to work instead for HSBC, (laughs) one of the most notorious banks on the planet, not coincidentally headquartered in London. And so the familiar swish of America's revolving door echoes amidst deafening global silence from thousands of yet-to-be-discovered ultimate beneficial owners who are likely praying that her replacement is equally spineless. In the face of political cowardice, it's tempting to yield to defeatism, to argue that the status quo remains fundamentally unchanged, while the Panama Papers are, if nothing else, a glaring symptom of our society's progressively diseased and decaying moral fabric. But the issue is finally on the table, and that change takes time is no surprise. For 50 years, executive legislative and judicial branches around the globe have utterly failed to address the metastasizing tax havens spotting Earth's surface. Even today, Panama says it wants to be known for more than papers, but its government has conveniently examined only one of the horses on its offshore merry-go-round. Banks, financial regulators and tax authorities have failed. Decisions have been made that have spared the wealthy while focusing instead on reining in middle and low income citizens. Hopelessly backward and inefficient courts have failed. Judges have too often acquiesced to the arguments of the rich, whose lawyers, and not just Mossack Fonseca, are well trained in honouring the letter of the law while simultaneously doing everything in their power to desecrate its spirit. The media has failed. Many news networks are cartoonish parodies of their former selves. Individual billionaires appear to have taken up newspaper ownership as a hobby, limiting coverage of serious matters concerning the wealthy and serious investigative journalists lack funding. The impact is real. In addition to Suddeutsche Zeitung and ICIJ, and despite explicit claims to the contrary, several major media outlets did have editors review documents from the Panama Papers. They chose not to cover them. The sad truth is that among the most prominent and capable media organisations in the world, there was not a single one interested in reporting on the story. Even WikiLeaks didn't answer its tip line repeatedly. But most of all, the legal profession has failed. Democratic governance depends upon responsible individuals throughout the entire system who understand and uphold the law, not who understand and exploit it. 
On average, lawyers have become so deeply corrupt that it is imperative for major changes in the profession to take place, far beyond the meek proposals already on the table. To start, the term legal ethics, upon which codes of conduct and licensure are nominally based, has become an oxymoron. Mossack Fonseca did not work in a vacuum. Despite repeated fines and documented regulatory violations, it found allies and clients at major law firms in virtually every nation. If the industry's shattered economics were not already evidence enough, there is now no denying that lawyers can no longer be permitted to regulate one another. It simply doesn't work. Those able to pay the most can always find a lawyer to serve their ends, whether that lawyer is at Mossack Fonseca or another firm of which we remain unaware. What about the rest of society? The collective impact of these failures has been a complete erosion of ethical standards, ultimately leading to a novel system we still call capitalism, but which is tantamount to economic slavery. In this system, our system, the slaves are unaware both of their status and of their masters, who exist in a world apart where the intangible shackles are carefully hidden amongst reams of unreachable legalese. The horrific magnitude of detriment to the world should shock us all awake. But when it takes a whistleblower to sound the alarm, it is cause for even greater concern. It signals that democracy's checks and balances have all failed, that the breakdown is systemic, and that severe instability could be just around the corner. So now is the time for real action and that starts with asking questions. Historians can easily recount how issues involving taxation and imbalances of power have led to revolutions in ages past. Then, military might was necessary to subjugate peoples, whereas now, curtailing information access is just as effective, or more so, since the act is often invisible. Yet we live in a time of inexpensive, limitless digital storage and fast internet connections that transcend national boundaries. It doesn't take much to connect the dots from start to finish, inception to global media distribution, the next revolution will be digitized. Or perhaps it has already begun. Bullshit. Bullshit.